Regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you're with us on the program today. Steve Gutkowski of the uh, Reload going to be with us here in a moment. We're going to talk about uh, just sort of a weekend review. Honestly, we've got so much stuff to talk about. The uh, Hunter Biden plea deal. The uh, Third Circuit decision kind of splitting the baby when it comes to the uh, post-Bruin carry laws imposed by the state. Uh, the Supreme Court, considering the Rahimi case in conference and more. So, yeah, we got a lot to talk with this, Stephen, about. We're going to get to that in just one moment. But before we do... You know, when you make choices about where to put your hard-earned dollars, you are supporting not only the company that made the product, but the values and the principles of that organization as well. A lesson that companies like Bud Light and Ash Bush, uh, InBev, I guess, uh, learning very well these days, right? It's easier to flip a switch against a company when they blatantly conflict with your values. But do you make an effort to do business with the companies that support what you believe when you can? Well, do yourself a favor. Give my friends at Defender Ammunition a shot. These guys are veteran-owned and operated. Every person on their staff is military-connected. They are huge supporters of our military community, backing causes that are actually making a difference in the lives of those that have served. In fact, the profits from all of Defender Ammunition's logoed gear goes directly to the charities that they support. This company is one to support as well. Their ammo is top-notch. Their customer service is incredible. One other shipping department actually writes handwritten thank-you notes to their customers. Give Defender Ammunition a try. They've thrown us a promo code to use at the end of the month. That code is Bearing Arms, good for 5% off your order. Trust me, once you give Defender Ammunition a try, you won't be going anywhere else. Check them out at DefenderAmmunition.com. Uh, and now let's get to our conversation with Stephen Gataski of The Reload because we have a lot to talk about. Take a look and a listen. Stephen, it's good to see you, sir. I love that shirt, by the way. I have that in gray in my uh, in my closet. Yes. Join or yeah. die. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, um, <clears throat> but my girlfriend recently became an American citizen, and before she took her test and did the oath, we watched uh, John Adams on HBO, uh, which obviously this is uh, the join or die poster and flag from the founding era, and it plays prominently in the intro of that show. So yep. I've always loved this shirt, and you know, they got it right. Those yeah. founders. <laughs> yes, they did. And I got to say, the miniseries still holds up. I mean, I that's one of those that I actually have on DVD. I I, I could watch it. I guess I could stream it now. But uh, man, Paul Giamatti was fantastic uh, in that yeah. uh, in that miniseries. Anyway, we can talk uh, TV all day long, but we got to talk two way stuff because it has been a busy week. I mean, you've got the Hunter Biden plea deal. You've got the Third Circuit decision uh, regarding New Jersey's carry laws. You've got the Supreme Court today considering in conference uh, the Rahimi case. Uh, and also today, this is going to happen um, by the time our, our audience gets to see this, the uh, the vote in the Senate will have taken place. But you've got the Senate vote on the uh, congressional resolution um, condemning the pistol brace rule and uh, overturning the pistol brace rule. So, you know, this is supposed to be the slow months of summer here, Stephen, and uh, it's not slow at all when it comes to the fight for our right to keep and bear arms. Yeah, it's certainly been pretty busy uh, as of late here. And, you know, that's just the news. It, it happens when it happens. You know, it doesn't it doesn't uh, <laughs> it doesn't really ever slow down as as you and I probably know pretty well from uh, running news sites based on this stuff. It's uh, you don't really get to take a break 
very often. No, not really. I mean, things will get a little bit quieter when the state legislatures start to wrap up. You yeah. won't have you know quite as many bills to cover. But uh, I mean, listen, the culture war continues. Um, and then you got has made the legal stuff so so much more common now to, yeah. to have a case that becomes a big thing after Bruin because the, all the lower courts are trying to figure out exactly what to do. Right, exactly. That is an ongoing story that, you know, we've got new twists and turns coming on almost a daily basis uh, from the uh, the legal system. Um, so so let's start there. Actually, let's let's start with uh, the legal case of one Hunter Biden, um, who got this deal from the DOJ. Uh, you know, he gets to plead misdemeanor uh, tax offenses and then the pretrial diversion for the line on the 4473 about being an unlawful user of drugs. I have seen um, a lot of people try to defend this as well. This is this is not outside the uh, the, the ordinary for DOJ. David Chipman uh, said, oh, "This is entirely appropriate." I mean, he he's taken responsibility for his actions, so yeah, I, I don't see anything wrong with this plea deal. But I've also seen a lot of former U.S. attorneys say, "Now this is unusual um, to bring this charge and then to allow him to basically plead out without doing any prison time." That is unusual because this is a serious offense. I mean, if you're convicted of this sentence, it's a potential 10-year prison term. I think federal sentencing guidelines would suggest something closer to, you know, a year or two behind bars. But, you know, Kodak Black's attorney came out this week and said, hey, yeah, my client didn't get a deal like this. Um, There was another case we're going to be talking about a little bit later on in the show out of uh, Nevada this week where a rapper did get probation uh, basically for being a straw uh, for for engaging in a straw purchase scheme. Uh, but that came from a judge. The judge gave him probation. DOJ wanted him to serve 30 years behind bars. So I, I guess my first question to you, Stephen, is what do you make of the plea deal for Hunter Biden? Yeah, I, actually, the episode of the Weekly Relay podcast this week is going to focus entirely on this this case and, and a lot on this question. Uh, because there's a lot of ways you could look at it. Uh, certainly, it's a serious crime, although technically it's not the lying on the background check uh, form that they are charging him with. It's uh, being the unlawful user of, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the possession crime, which is, you know, uh, six of one, half a dozen the other kind of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, as a standalone crime, it's pretty unusual. And when I say standalone, obviously he pled to other crimes, um, to misdemeanor tax-related crimes, uh, which, but I mean, standalone that, the only thing that was related to the gun possession was this this specific charge. And that's where I think it's different from some of these other cases that people have brought up, like Kodiak Black, who um, has a very long rack sheet of very bad things that he's been convicted of doing, uh, including other gun crimes in his past. So it's, it's in that sense, it's pretty different. Um, it's fairly rare to see this charged as, you know, just this charge. We have seen it. Usually... The way this works is it's a, they use it as a tack on crime. And we actually saw this recently with the mother of the six-year-old who brought the gun to school and shot the teacher in, in Virginia. They just charged her with this crime mm-hmm. uh, for having marijuana uh, while owning this gun. And they did that because presumably they couldn't find it, something else to charge her with. And so the, this gets used as either a tack on or a fallback. Right. If the if the feds want to go after you for something and this is the easiest thing they can prove, that's usually when it happens. So I think uh, I talked to Drew Stevenson, who's a professor at um, a college of law, it's, uh, South Texas, who studied this and written about it. 
uh, and I think there's only about 200 convictions a year where this is the only crime. Um, and he said, usually, even in those cases, it's the only conviction and, and it's likely they started off with a number of other charges. Um, now, there have been some cases, I think, that are closer to Hunter Biden where there isn't, um, it's not as clear that there's other stuff going on, right? Um, there And those have been actually kind of the notable ones for these constitutional challenges that have come up recently. So you had a case in Texas and you had a case in Oklahoma where the this portion of federal law was ruled unconstitutional, right? And those were based around cases where people were charged with this crime, possession of a gun while being an, uh, an unlawful user of drugs. You know, one of them was a guy who had uh, was was arrested with marijuana and a gun in his car. That was the uh, Oklahoma case, I believe. And then the Texas case was a woman who was arrested for having marijuana and owning guns and then transferring um, the firearms and ammo to her husband, who was an illicit user of multiple different kinds of drugs. So those kind of strike me as closer to Hunter Biden than some of the other ones that have come up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I, certainly you could get 10 years for this. Usually, I, mean, I don't know, from the experts that I've talked to, usually it doesn't get charged at all. Um unless they're looking to get you and they can't get you on anything else. Which, which is, which says a lot, by the way, I mean, if that is the case, doesn't that say something about our criminal justice system and, and DOJ uh, to begin with, you know, because one of the cases yeah. that I'm, uh, and I cited this at bearing arms, there was a case out of Connecticut. I think this was uh, last year, the 24 year old. And, and as you say, like, so the ATF's investigating this guy for gun trafficking, um, but as it turns out, he lawfully possessed all of the guns that he had in his possession. They really couldn't get him on gun trafficking because they didn't right. have the evidence for that. But in talking to ATF agents, he admitted, yeah, you know, I, I smoke marijuana to help me with my anxiety. And so they charged him mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, the, the this offense. Um, he was sentenced to probation. Because the judge rejected DOJ's uh, requested sentence of 18 to 24 months in prison. Right. Uh, and she said, no, that's not appropriate. She she said, uh, you know, look, marijuana is going to be legal in Connecticut. It's going to be legal at the federal level soon. I don't know about that. Uh, but she basically said, you know, no, this would be a shame to put him in prison for this. I think you can make the case. In fact, I think there's a stronger case to be made that this statute needs to go away entirely um, because it does seem like this is being selectively enforced, uh, even beyond uh, Hunter Biden's case, as you say. I mean, if the if the the attitude is, OK, well, this is something that gets trotted out when we can't convict him of anything else. So we'll bring this out. Have you talked to so when you talk to Stevenson, for example, um, mm -hmm. in these 200 or so cases a year, how often is probation or pretrial diversion the 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 outcome as opposed to prison? Because that's the other question, right? So we can talk about how often these things are charged. But we also have to talk about the outcomes of those cases. Right. I think it's less clear, although, you know, in, in Hunter Biden's case, obviously it's hard to talk to, about Hunter Biden because what people think of with Hunter Biden beyond beyond even just the politics side of it is all the other things, right, that, that's out there about him, all the pictures and videos of him doing all kinds of illicit things with drugs and prostitutes and all this stuff. And then the, the influence peddling and shady dealing uh, that, that isn't really part of this particular deal. Um, and so it's it's hard to look, you know, I can understand why people 
even if you look at this particular deal on these particular charges and you can say, well, maybe it's not, um, you know, an insane thing. I think people still have this impression that he's done a lot of other stuff that isn't included in this. And that's where you get a lot of people who aren't happy with the outcome, right? They, they feel like he's getting off easy because he's politically, politically connected. His dad is the president. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's the case. Uh, I think pretrial di diversion, from what I understand, talking to some prosecutors about it, for somebody who doesn't have a previous conviction and is in a case where this is the standalone gun charge, it's not that unrealistic. Also, it's it's one thing that struck me about odd about it, but although apparently this is not something that is unusual, I guess you can just elect to give up your rights as part of these sorts of deals, but he's not allowed to own guns anymore for the rest of his life. So he kind of has that particular phase of the felony punishment just without the actual felony conviction on his record. Um, and the other con condition is that he has to stay clean for 24 months. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I think to me, where I've seen a lot more of the criticism come from the gun rights groups, like, uh, you know, Alan Gottlieb at uh, the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, focuses more on, and, and the National Shooting Sports Foundation as well, on the sort of hypocrisy of this, of um, President Biden wanting to tighten our gun laws while his son is getting this deal that is, uh, you know, not the strictest possible punishment for what he did and and that's probably more reasonable criticism to me than the details of the particular deal i actually think that he probably wouldn't have gotten anything at all on this gun charge um if it wasn't for his own uh bizarre decision to publicize that he had been using drugs heavily at this time when he bought this gun because we had the information we had earlier was you know from the the laptop and the leaked texts and and pictures and stuff that's that all happened before this period where he bought this gun and you can make an argument and someone with a good lawyer could probably get a charge like this tossed without any evidence that he was ongoing uh in his drug addiction during this period uh but then he came out and wrote that book that said he was doing crack every 15 minutes right and he went on a media tour talking about it. I feel like he kind of forced the hand of the prosecutors in this case to some degree because it's like, well, not only did you put out evidence that you basically are admitting that you were addicted to drugs while you had this gun, but you did it in the most public way possible in a very politically fraught situation where we're investigating you that, you know, I feel like they could they couldn't have just dropped this altogether at that point. I, I agree. Um, although, again, I do think that in similar circumstances that we've been talking about somebody whose last name wasn't Biden, who had, you know, again, publicized in, a, in an autobiography that they were smoking crack every 15 minutes. And then we knew this. I I just don't think we would see um, the outcome that we saw here with Hunter Biden. But, uh, you know, again, I. I I guess we'll never know. Or, or maybe we will know going forward. Um, you know, is this going to be the Biden yeah. rule or is this going to be the Biden exception to DOJ's policy? Right. Because DOJ yeah. is still arguing that, listen, even if you live in a state where now, you know, it's not maybe Oregon, I think you can smoke crack. I think they decriminalized every drug. So but <laughs> but in the other 49 states, uh, you know, you can't legally smoke crack. Um but almost half the country has legalized marijuana. In fact, more than half the country has legalized marijuana uh, when it comes to medical marijuana. 
Right. But DOJ still holds that position that, listen, even if you've got a medical marijuana card, you're a cancer patient, you're, you know, eating a, a, an edible every day so you can uh, have an appetite and, you you know, you, you can alleviate some of the side effects. You are no longer a law abiding citizen and you have lost your right to keep and bear arms. I mean, this is what they are still arguing in court case after court case around the country. That's very true. And and, you know, the ATF, uh, after Minnesota decriminalized marijuana possession earlier this month, the ATF came out with a statement that said, hey, look, we're still going to enforce this. This is still federal law. We haven't changed anything about how we pursue these these sorts of arrests or these cases. And, you know, that's where the political hypocrisy aspect comes in. You have the, mm-hmm. you have the president tightening gun laws, pursuing people for possessing firearms while being drug users, um, even of something like marijuana, which is obviously a much less uh, serious drug than crack cocaine. And um, and at the same time, his son is getting this deal where he's not going to face any prison time. So, yeah, you can understand why people can look at that situation and think there's a level of of hypocrisy happening here for sure. Do you think it would be better politically for Joe Biden had DOJ actually uh, said, all right, or the U.S. attorney in Delaware said, you know what, we're going to take this case to trial. We're not offering you a plea bargain uh, or we're offering you a plea deal. But you know what, you're going to do 12 months uh, in federal prison. Would that have been better for Joe Biden politically? Because it does seem to me like this is going to be a yoke around his neck going forward when he talks about gun control. Maybe. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Um, it would have been more interesting for us as news uh, reporters uh, because the the um, the rumor was, or there was a report in the New York Times that said Hunter Biden had planned to use the Second Amendment defense right. if, he, if this had gone to trial. And I think that would have been uh, pretty fascinating to watch because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there that's actually not an... Uh, absurd defense anymore. It's a fairly right. uh, reasonable thing to try and argue that basically this prohibition, because in, in large part because it's a, a lifetime prohibition, um, that was one of the big issues in the Texas case, uh, which where the plaintiff won, right, or where the defendant, sorry, the 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 who was just who just had you know public defenders representing mm-hmm. them. Both of these drug cases I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Biden with. The lawyers he would be able to afford uh, could probably get even further with a case like that. Right. Now, of course, I think, of course, if you you look at it from like a defendant's perspective, you don't really want to be the the star defendant that goes to the Supreme Court. If 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 you're the person in that situation, you're much happier to take some sort of deal to avoid jail time than making a sort of novel argument about yes. the constitutionality of the law. Oh, absolutely. Listen, this this was not a close call for Hunter Biden. I mean, if a deal like this is on the table, you snatch that up and you agree to it before they pull it back. So uh, th- this was the smart move for Hunter Biden to make. I don't think Hunter Biden ever wanted to be the poster child for Second Amendment rights. No. But uh, it would have been fascinating for us oh, when would have been. consider the firearms reporters out there in the world. Well, listen, all right. So we don't have Hunter Biden, but we have Zaki Rahimi. Uh, yes. That case is before uh, the Supreme Court. They're going to be uh, discussing this in conference today. Could learn as early as next week whether or not they're going to take the Rahimi case. Um, Zaki Rahimi is also not a poster child for the Second Amendment. At least I don't think most people would consider him to be one. He's a guy who's been charged with some pretty serious offenses. Uh, he was uh, subject to a domestic violence restraining order, which prevented him from owning a firearm. And uh, he was caught in possession of a gun. Uh, This comes after, I guess, he was a suspect in five different shootings in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, 
so the the district judge in this case uh, basically found that um, the prohibition on uh, uh, folks who are subject to a domestic violence restraining order, which is a civil order, right? That's not a criminal charge. That there was basically no historic analog. Um, and the judge went out of his way to note, look, I'm not minimizing domestic violence, but I'm saying that there were this options off the table. And there are other options that were available to prosecutors if they wanted to keep Mr. Rahimi from owning a gun. They could have or, you know, tried to keep him held without bond uh, yeah. you know, for these violent crimes. Um, so this case is now going up before the Supreme Court. They're going to consider this. There have been you know, a lot of amicus briefs filed on both sides here. A uh, number of blue state AGs weighing and asking the court to overturn this decision. I, I'm curious, Stephen, do you think that the uh, Supreme Court is, is, I realize this is just a prediction. We're not asking it to be uh, Nostradamus here, but uh, do you think that the Supreme Court is ready to to take this case? Or do you think they're going to let the lower court sort of battle this these issues out a little bit longer? I think they're going to take this case. Uh, I think they almost have to. I mean, th this is something where the federal government is appealing a decision and they they tend to get priority, right? Uh, because the, the Supreme Court and the federal government don't like situations where federal law is only enforceable in parts of the country, and which is what the case is now. With Brahimi, they can't enforce domestic violence restraining order prohibitions uh, in the Fifth Circuit, which is, you know, pretty big chunk of the country because it includes texas and so uh you know it, it, plus there's a lot of these kinds of cases coming up now. i mean we, we just mentioned some of them for the prohibited persons drug user situation there's a lot of prohibited persons cases coming to the court and they're gonna have to take probably some of those before they take the ones that i think gun rights activists really want them to take things like assault weapons bans or magazine limits or or, uh, you know, permit to purchase laws, stuff like that, where you see the gun rights groups focusing their efforts because the gun rights groups aren't involved in these cases. Like, none right. Of these no, these cases. are, as you mentioned, these are mostly public defenders who are, are you know, utilizing the Bruin decision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I, I think they're going to have to like the, not only is there a strong sort of norm to take these cases, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of them bubbling up uh, and, and they raise a lot of questions about current federal law. All right. So the next question, um, if they take this case, do you think that uh, their decision will be sort of narrowly crafted for uh, for Mr. Rahimi? Or do you think they will try to make the, you know some sort of broad declaration about all private persons? Because, again, you know, they're, we're talking about a specific part of federal statute here. Right. There are a number of disqualifying offenses um, and being subject to a domestic violence restraining order is a different subsection of the uh, the federal law than being an unlawful user of, of uh, drugs, for instance. Right. So do they try to wrap all this up in, in one case or do they stick to the narrow question that's presented in Rahimi? That's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I would think there's going to be a lot of uh, turmoil over this on the court because I don't know that all six of the conservative justices all, all six of the you know the bruin justices are on the same page on this stuff right like you, you you go and look at bruin and i don't see a six three ruling i see you know a, a like a two one uh three ruling there because based on those concurrences that exist especially the and, and i think what's going to be controlling is the the Roberts Kavanaugh section of that 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 court because um, they were the ones who wrote that concurrence that said, you know, 
shall issue permitting is fine for concealed carry. So they're a little more moderate than what you might take away from the, the actual majority ruling in that case. Not that they were directly in conflict, but, um, you know, and, and I wonder how they're going to react to the idea of striking down a prohibition on somebody owning guns who has a domestic violence restraining order against them, especially because that would put the court uh, probably ahead of public opinion at this point. Oh, yeah. So this... Up till now, with, when the Supreme Court has taken up gun cases, their rulings have really been behind public opinion, right? Because you think about Heller in 2008, that all they really ruled in that case, you know, obviously there's more structural um, importance to these rulings than just the specific outcome. But the specific outcome is you can't ban handguns. And by that point, only two places in the whole country had handgun bans, Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. and Chicago, right? Practically speaking. Uh, so it was pretty well established that the public was on board with this idea. And then when you get to Bruin, there were only eight states that had may issue concealed carry laws, these subjective laws that basically made it impossible for people to get a license. And so the court was pretty far behind public opinion on that one, too. Right. I mean, the shift in that started in you know the 90s with Florida and then moved through the whole country until there were only a couple holdouts left and that's when the supreme court stepped in you haven't seen the same thing with domestic violence related gun prohibitions right it's, it's right. not as I, I highly doubt that that would have as much public support getting rid of that um and so i you know you could i could certainly see how you would uh the fifth circuit's reasoning under bruin it's uh, certainly logical but the question is whether the court is willing to go there on a practical basis yeah. And I would say, and if they decide not to go there, yeah, how, how, how do you, how do you do that while adhering to the Bruin test that you just outlined a year ago? Right. Um, so yeah, this, I think you're right. This, this could get very, very interesting. Um, and, and I, I suspect that it will, uh, I think you're right. I think they will take Rahimi. I think it's going to be a very, very narrow uh, opinion coming from the court. Five, four. Yeah. I, yeah, well, and I, but also I think the scope of the opinion. I think it will be a closely divided court, but I think the scope of that opinion is going to be, you know, razor thin um, because I, I, I think they are going to be wrestling with some of the same questions that the lower courts are wrestling with. You know, yeah. um, if you're treating this as a fundamental right and if you're adhering to the Bruin test, Okay, you know how 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 far can you stray from these uh, uh, historic analogs before now they're not analogous at all, right? Um, and I think that's something that you're right. If you look at the Bruin opinion, I and and even some of the other court decisions that we've seen this uh, this term, um, it does seem like Robertson, maybe Kavanaugh are trying to carve out. Uh, you know, some middle ground, some middle space. And 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 maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's going to, you know, try to provide them some cover on the gun stuff. I don't know. It's it's hard to read the tea leaves with the court. But uh, I, I do suspect that, yeah, they are going to take this. I just don't think it's going to be uh, a sweeping decision that's going to answer, you know, forevermore uh, the scope of primitive persons. I, I don't think the court, I think the court actively wants to avoid uh, a decision like that right now uh, and yeah. let the lower courts fight it out a little bit. Hey, listen, I, I think it'll come down to the fact that this is a restraining order, not a conviction, too. That that will seem mm -hmm. to be a big part of the key 
analysis in the Fifth Circuit. And I do think that's probably a pretty significant legal distinction that the court may focus on here. Yep, I think you're right. Um, and listen, we are running short on time, unfortunately, but uh, uh, we got to have you back again soon. Just uh, go ahead and forward my last email uh, to the powers that be so we can <laughs> schedule you again here because we got much more to talk about. Uh, but, you know, obviously check out the reload.com, sign up for the weekly newsletter, uh, you know, give Stephen couple of bucks if you can become a subscriber to uh, the reload there's great stuff there every day not only from Stephen but from uh, Jake Fogelman and, and who is the uh, who's your newest writer over at the reload yeah, Stephen Bull he's our intern from the National Journalism Center uh this this summer and he's doing great work he is that's fantastic so uh well you keep up your great work Stephen uh, it's always good to see you man I really appreciate you coming on the show today and uh I look forward to doing this again very soon thanks for having me well, thank you very much to uh, Stephen for joining me on the program. I'm looking forward to having him back again in the future. Uh, now, before we turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day and our recidivist report, Biden's America is crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation is pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the price of lunch meat, for goodness sakes. And a digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that's why you should call GoldCo. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, with thousands of five-star reviews. And they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call 855-412-3806 today. That's Gold Co. at 855-412-3806. All right, so now let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our uh, good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We're going to start there, a case that has um, some similarities to the uh, plea deal that Hunter Biden received. The uh, rapper Filthy Rich catching a break in a gun case, receiving probation instead of prison time. Yeah, this was, uh, in essence, a straw purchase uh, deal. Uh, Judge James Mahan sentencing the uh, Bay Area rapper to two years of probation in a Nevada court uh, on June 21st. Uh, Filthy Rich, whose uh, real name is Philip Beasley, pleaded guilty back in May uh, to this charge. He actually recruited a woman named Jasmine Garcia to illegally illegally purchase guns from a Las Vegas uh, gun store back in 2021. A prior felony conviction prohibited Mr. Rich from lawfully possessing a firearm. So he was the architect of a straw purchase scheme. Now, Garcia accepted a plea deal and was sentenced to time served. Prosecutors with the DOJ sought a 30-year prison sentence for Filthy Rich. Mm -hmm. 30 years. That's what prosecutors were asking for. No pretrial diversion. Nothing like that. Nope. 30 years in prison. Now, again, Judge James Mahan completely went against what prosecutors were asking for. Maybe maybe he saw the news about Hunter Biden. I don't know. But uh, for whatever reason, Judge Mahan uh, said, nah, we're not going to give him 30 years. In fact, we're not going to give him any time behind bars. Two years probation for this straw purchasing scheme. And uh, you're on your merry way. I got to say, I... Um, <clears throat> 
I, I don't agree with the judge's decision here. I think this sets a very bad example. But I think it is also worth highlighting, again, the sentence that the DOJ was asking for in this case. 30 years behind bars. They didn't get it. But they did not offer filthy rich, Philip Beasley, anywhere close to the same type of deal. Remember, he had uh, uh, pled guilty. Um, And yet, despite that, prosecutors are still going for decades behind bars for Philip Beasley. Hunter Biden, hold out your hand. Bad, bad boy. Don't do that again. Yeah. But again. No, no two-tiered system of justice in this country, right? Mm-mm. Not one for the elite, the powerful, the connected, and those named Biden. And one for everybody else. No, no, no. Justice is blind. That's what they tell us. Today's Armed Citizen story from Louisville, Kentucky, where a, a grand jury investigated a, a shooting at an animal clinic earlier this year and has now declined to issue any indictments, calling it a case of self-defense. Uh, we don't know all of the facts. I guess the grand jury does, but the uh, reports on this shooting indicate it happened back on, uh, I guess it was in April, no, May 14th, excuse me. Uh, 21-year-old Trent Taylor was shot and killed during an altercation at the Shively Animal Hospital and Clinic. He was an employee there. Um, now, shortly after this happened, police in uh, Shively indicated that the shooting may have happened out of self-defense. The Commonwealth Attorney's Office took the police investigation to a grand jury. They said that the grand jury considered second-degree manslaughter as well as reckless homicide charges for the shooter, but a, quote, no true bill was returned, meaning that there's not enough evidence to support the charges. Uh, The release from the Commonwealth Attorney's Office said that evidence showed that Taylor was shot and killed after he was the initial aggressor against the shooter and her spouse. So this was a, uh, a female who apparently was the victim of a violent crime. Uh, the release said that uh, video supported the narrative that Taylor initiated, quote, various levels of violent force against the shooter and her spouse before the uh, victim used deadly force in self-defense. Taylor's father said, my son died over a dog, over a woman who couldn't pay the bill for a dog. That's why my son is dead, over a dog. And I feel for Mr. Taylor, I do. Having lost a son myself, not to an act of violence, not to an act of self-defense. But I've still lost my son. Um, so I, I know the heartache and the pain that he feels. But if his son was the initial aggressor, if the police investigated this, if this was taken to a grand jury, the grand jury investigated this and found that the woman who shot his son had a reasonable fear that her life was in danger, that her spouse's life was in danger, that, again, his son was the initial aggressor. This can be a tragedy. I'm sure that uh, the victim who defended herself and her spouse is not happy that she was forced to take those actions. I'm sure this is something that is going to weigh on her forevermore. Uh, That's the case typically with every defensive gun use. This is not something that when you are forced to take a life, even in self-defense, It's not something that most people can just, you know, brush off. So this was tragic. And I feel for Mr. Taylor's family. But again, at the end of the day, after the police investigation and a grand jury investigation with eyewitness testimony, with video surveillance footage uh, indicating that this woman was acting in self-defense, 
sounds to me like an investigation was done and the proper conclusion was reached. Um, David Moore, who is an attorney representing the family, says he believes the case wasn't pushed hard enough. He said, I can assure you if the prosecutor believed in this and took it to the grand jury and pushed that, then there would have been an indictment if they wanted an indictment. He says the uh, plan, uh, family plans on filing a civil lawsuit against the woman who shot and killed Taylor in the coming weeks. And, you know, to Mr. Moore's assertion that, well, if the prosecutor really believed in this and took it to the grand jury and pushed this, there would have been an indictment. Let's say that that was the case. And I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that it is. But let's say that that is the case. Well, what would make the Commonwealth's attorney not believe in this case? The most obvious answer is that the evidence wouldn't support criminal charges. But he did offer the grand jury the opportunity to indict on multiple offenses. Uh, and so, again, I mean, if that's a pretty serious accusation that the Commonwealth's attorney is not doing their job because what? They don't feel like taking this case to trial? Uh, they want to let somebody they believe is a murderer get off scot-free. I mean, again, it's a pretty serious allegation. Seems to me that Occam's razor uh, would suggest that the reason why the jury to the grand jury returned a uh, no bill is that they did not believe that this was uh, an act of wanton violence, that they believe that this was a justified use of force in self-defense. And I know that must be a bitter pill to swallow, but it does appear like that's the case. Today's uh, good deed of the day comes to us from, uh, I believe this is Sedgwick County, Nebraska. Uh, yes, oh, no, excuse me, Sedgwick County, Kansas. Um, I got to tell you, man, this story... <laughs> I talked earlier in the week about, you know, the chainsaw brigade that uh, came out last week. Uh, we had wicked storms go through the area, golf ball size hail, knocked out power, knocked out Internet. My wife and daughter were out of the house. They were coming back from a doctor's appointment and uh, there were trees all across the road. They couldn't get home. Um, but it wasn't, you know, the Virginia Department of Transportation. They came out eventually. Uh, but before DOT could even get here, you just had. You know, guys showing up with their chainsaws, cutting up the trees, clearing the road, getting people on their way. That's what that's what neighbors do. Um, I'd like to think that's what neighbors do all across the country. I know that's what neighbors do in in rural America. We 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 have to look out for each other, right? And that was the case in uh, Sedgwick County, where a neighbor helped save a man who had submerged in a skid steer in a lagoon. God, I mean. What an awful experience. Uh, and this really was a, a matter of life and death. This wasn't just, you know, gross. I fell into a sewage lagoon. Um, this skid steer had fallen in such a way that the operator was trapped, basically had no air. Uh, he had his face pressed up against the cabin to try to get just a little bit of breath. Uh, but there was a neighbor who saw what happened. Uh, he ran over, grabbed his small tractor, hooked a chain onto the front of the skid steer, and was able to pull it up enough that there was an air pocket that the guy trapped inside could, could use to breathe until firefighters arrived uh, and were actually able to extricate him from that lagoon. So uh, he is okay, thankfully. 
Uh, and again, I think it's all because an alert neighbor in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing for a, a friend in need. So there you go. I wish I had some names to give you, but uh, anonymous Good Samaritan who's handy with a tractor, we thank you for your very, very good deed. Now, that is about all the time we've got for you in this edition of Barry and Arms, Cam and Company. But I do want to thank you, as always, for being a part of the program. I'm looking forward to being back with you on Monday. And, of course, don't forget to check out BarryandArms.com throughout Friday and the weekend. we got you covered on all of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. And if you like what you see, uh, I'd also encourage you to become a VIP or a VIP Gold member. Just go to BarryandArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. And as our way of showing our thanks for your support, we're going to give you exclusive content, news stories and commentary you won't find anywhere else because your support really does matter and it does truly make a difference. So thank you again. Looking forward to being back with you here in a couple of days. But until then, be well, be safe, and be free. <laughs>